0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're going to time travel on today's show to when people first got to North America. Remember, humans didn't start out here. But when they arrived, they were greeted with ice, lots of ice, also woolly mammoths. What would have been going through their heads? Why did they press on? That's what nature and travel writer Craig Childs explores in his new book, Atlas of a Lost World travels in ice age america he imagines walking in the shoes oh wait craig did, did these people have shoes
1: um probably not the same shoes we have but they may have had leggings they probably had uh, had some kind of footwear in the north but as you headed south you could ditch the shoes all right well he imagines walking in the shoes of the first people to reach
0: this continent childs lives in norwood in southwest Colorado, and he joins us on the stage at the Avalon Theater in Grand Junction. Let's welcome him. You start this book in a place called Porcupine Cave in central Colorado. It's near South Park. And you find yourself whispering to the remains of an Ice Age camel. What did you whisper?
1: (laughs) Everything that I whispered or just the one thing that I wrote about? <laughs> <laughs> I, I whispered your world is about to change. I, I worked on this excavation for seasons, and it was just my job to take this camel out of this cave. and And I just kept thinking, you were here when there were no people. You knew nothing of my kind of campfires and weaponry and any of this. You knew a continent that it was just animal. And, and so my whispering to it was was saying, ah, everything's about to happen. People are about to show up. The whole world is going to change. The people are coming. Yeah, and yeah. that changes a lot. There haven't been that many places on the planet where there aren't people, especially half a side of the planet. And you describe humans coming to
0: North America as one of the greatest experiments in global history,
1: what do you mean by that? An experiment well think of think of half the planet not having people on it, and what would happen if you opened up a conduit and let our species through and Just what would we do? What would the human species do when it arrives in a place where you don 't know how far it goes you don 't You get up on top of a mountain range you don 't know if it 's going to if, if you're at the end of this continent or it goes on for uh, to the east coast. So you wouldn't know any of this. And, and how do people spread? How do they interact with the animals that are there? How do they survive? And why do they spread? So it's a, it is a big experiment, letting people over to this side of the world.
0: It's funny, when I am driving in mountain ranges, I try to imagine sometimes if I, if I didn't know the topography at all, if it hadn't been mapped... And it is that feeling of, how long does this go
1: on? Mm. How far could this go? How small am I on this land? Yeah, which you wouldn't know. You would get up on top of a mountain range and see another mountain range or see the, you know, imagine coming out over the front range, you know, topping out above Boulder and seeing the the, the Great Plains stretching out in front of you and... And how far does it go past there? And what if you start following rivers? Where do they take you? So I, I think we can get back in that mindset. I mean, you can do it while driving. You can Because it's the same topography, basically, that was here in the Ice Age. You can, you can see these same mountains and wonder what's past them. Writing this book was a thorny project to take on
0: because, quoting you here, how, when, and where the first people entered the Americas remains one of the world's most contentious prehistoric problems.
1: Yeah, it'll keep changing. We'll never have the date, but uh, you can always go back to uh, where is most of the archaeology coming from, which right now it's uh, the oldest archaeology is coming out of uh, 14,500, 15,000 years ago. But it'll keep going back farther because little artifacts will show up and another story will emerge and you'll be going back 20,000 years, and then 50,000 years. I don't know where this ends, but... When
0: you say artifacts, you mean signs of human presence.
1: Yeah, yeah. So stone scrapers, fire pits, uh, butchered animal bones. These are all signs that people were here, which when you're going back to the Ice Age, it was so long ago that sometimes that's all you get is a bone with scratch marks on it.
0: But of course, anything could have scratched that bone. It didn't necessarily have to be a person.
1: That's why it's contentious, because <laughs> you, you look at the bone. You know, I've been with paleontologists who are saying, look at that bone, that's a human scratch bone. And other paleontologists go, that is absolutely not. A
0: tree did that.
1: Yeah. But then you look at it and you see these parallel scrape marks right at where they would have been cutting tendons off of, off of a long bone. And you can see somebody scratching that with a stone knife blade. So sometimes it's clear. What is the oldest most widely accepted
0: sign of human presence in North America? Hmm.
1: (laughs) Widely accepted? Depends on which archaeologist you're talking to. (laughs) Uh, Right now I would say the the date is at 15,000 years ago and that's pushing it. I think there are some archaeologists who would stand strongly at 14 and some who aren't moving from 13. It's a battle, and, and people get up on the podiums, and they're slamming their hands and, and uh, you know, over a thousand-year period, whether this is real or not real.
0: This brings us to an idea that I think many of us first learned in grade school, which is the Bering Land Bridge, which allows people to cross into North America. It sounds so easy, right? A land bridge, like something you could cross on a day hike. <laughs> What, what is the land bridge?
1: The land bridge is is maybe a hundred day hikes. It's a long, long way across. It's a a landmass that, that connects Alaska to Siberia. And, and it's actually a, a, a subcontinent in itself. So it's a big piece of land. It's a, a thousand miles by a thousand miles.
0: And this was revealed, obviously... N- Not in present day, but this was revealed at certain times
1: in Earth's history. Right. During the Ice Age, you have all this ice that's piling up on land, so it's taking water from the sea, and so sea levels are dropping, and they're about 400 feet lower at the height of the Ice Age. And so that reveals this broad continental shelf of the uh, Bering Land Bridge.
0: What you're calling this subcontinent. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you
1: think would have possessed a person to say, let's go over there? <laughs> this is a possession we seem to have as a species. We seem to be going to places all the time that we can't get to or they're ridiculous to get to. That, I mean, look at people who are, I mean, I do it. I, I'm sitting here. <laughs> I'm proof that people do ridiculous things. <laughs> Some of us have to go. Some of us look at the horizon and, and just go, you know what, there's something out there. And, and there's something that keeps pulling us. And I imagine walking across the land bridge and that big open expanse, uh, very few mountain ranges on it. So you're just looking out. You'd get on top of one of these ranges and you would see farther and farther. And, and I know that gravity that just pulls on you that says, there's something there and it's the emptiness that's there. It's the new topography that you've never seen. It's not that there's, there's something tangible. Maybe there are resources. Maybe there are stones that you can make tools out of. But really, it's just being there saying, oh, wow, I've never been here. You explore this idea that we are hardwired to seek
0: in the book, uh, quoting you here. Crystals of the mineral magnetite have been found in human brain tissue, orienting to cardinal directions. Uh, You also write, the increased genetic presence of the dopamine receptor known as D4 is correlated with restless behavior and what is known as novelty-seeking, the kind of people who are reckless or adventurous
1: in need of something new. I, I think every species needs those who stay and those who go, because the goers, they figure out where there are new niches in case everybody needs to move. Those who stay, they hold on to whatever you found last. And so I think that's how we work as a species, how every species work. Some go, some stay. In between, you get this, this balance. But those of us who are goers, I, I, I guess it's more romantic than staying, but we're not more needed than the stayers. But, mm. but you feel it. You feel this, this need every day to there's got to be something new about this day, every single day. I want to talk in depth about who these
0: earlier rivals were. I want to know everything about them from you know what they wore to what they looked like. Uh, but I do want to remind people that you're a travel writer, you go places, and to feel close to the land bridge, you travel to St.
1: Lawrence Island. Uh, you have to have special permission to go there? Or you land there and and have brought groceries and you start passing them out. and, and... And, and you bribe your way on? Yeah, you, <laughs> okay. with fruit. Because they don't, have, they don't have fruit up there, so you bring fruit up and you're in.
0: You also brought your mom. Not I as did. an offering, but along with you.
1: <laughs> well, she kind of worked as an offering. She was, she was the one out front all the time that people would meet and go, oh, great, you're here. And who's that guy with you? Tell us about St.
0: Lawrence Island. What did you hope to experience there? And I don't know, how did it match up to... Your expectations?
1: Well, I I hope to experience the remaining piece of the Bering Land Bridge, which is what it is. It's a a mountain range that would have been on the land bridge, and now it's an island, so it's been swallowed up to its last moment. And I expected to find a treeless island of tundra, which is what it is. And I found a landscape that's very hard to adjust your eye to because tundra, rolling tundra is a complex thing for the eye to pick up. It's hard to tell distances. And, and so I just walked out across this tundra thinking, this is the way it happened. This is, this is the, the terrain that people saw. And I would drop in woolly mammoths and um, American lions and short-faced bears in my imagination. These but, ice age creatures. Yeah, so I had a landscape to put the creatures on because it's the same shape. It hasn't changed in 15, 20,000 years. So you're still on the original substrate that was the Bering Land Bridge. This is a theme in the book. It's you imagining yourself in Ice Age
0: America. I know that term hadn't come around yet. And I wonder if y- your imagination was as vivid when you were a kid, and if it got you into trouble?
1: Yes, <laughs> always. It still, it does. I just turned trouble into books. (laughs) But as a kid, I would always be, well, my kids are in the audience, so... Yeah, I climbed out of the bedroom window at night, uh, and I would just escape into wherever. I wasn't heading anywhere in particular. I would go to empty lots or golf courses in the city that are being watered in the middle of the night. I would just roam. I needed to get out. (laughs) Okay, to the, the first
0: people these humans to come to North America, can we call them humans? Maybe that's a naive question.
1: No, it's a a really good question. I think it's a question a lot of people ask uh, because we see people of that age, fifteen, twenty thousand 20,000 years ago, as as being cave people, you know, hairy, monosyllabic, throwing rocks. They were actually homo sapiens. They were the same as us. They would be sitting in this audience right now and we wouldn't know it. Um, Okay. It wasn't that long ago. They had languages. They would have had clothing and fine tools, you know, sewing needles. Uh, they, so they were, they were us. I, I think that if you brought them into this, this world, we, couldn't, we wouldn't be able to, to pick them out except for the terrified look on their face of being inside a <laughs> building like this. How could we possibly know they had language? Well, they, you can trace linguistics back to figure out where they came from. And they didn't, there are some languages that actually came across and developed here. There's a, a language that's related to Navajo, to uh, Diné, that's up in central Siberia that was thought to have been the source of that language. But it was actually an American language that moved back across the land bridge at some late point. So you can see languages moving around.
0: Wait, the land bridge works both ways. Yeah, Right. I think we have always thought of it. I'll speak for myself. I think I have always thought of it as a direction to North America. But you could have gotten out too.
1: Oh, yeah. There were animals coming, coming across. There were horses, uh, Pleistocene horses were moving from the Americas to Asia. So it's, it's an opening between two sides of the world. And so animals and people are meeting each other. There were probably people who were heading the other way who were meeting people who were coming in. And they probably spoke different languages. And they were encountering each other trying to figure out what their stories were. How wide should I picture the land bridge? You should picture it a thousand miles. If you're in the middle, you're, you're 500 miles either direction, north to south, to get to a coast. Okay, so it's not like I'm in line at the movies and someone is passing by. No, you're on, yeah. a, you're on a big piece of land. Okay. You could lose people out there for thousands of years. Rosie, picture there.
0: <laughs> Who had bigger brains, us or them?
1: They had bigger brains.
0: They
1: had bigger brains. Yeah, 5% larger. The brain case is larger. It's hard to tell what was missing. I mean, my immediate reaction is, oh, they were smarter. Right. Uh, Because in ways, they probably were. They had to deal with variables that we don't have to deal with. I think our variables are much... They require smaller, more compact parts of the brain. Our variables are about social interactions, uh, things that we can't see, where a lot of their world was about things they could see, about animals right in front of them. So I think it, it, it's also true that when you domesticate animals, their brains get smaller. And that's a lot of that is aggression. The aggression centers are not as needed anymore because you can't have domestic animals living together who are aggressive, and that would describe us to some degree. How many... People
0: would there have been in North America at first? Is it the Brady Bunch or is it like the town of Fruta?
1: Yeah, it's more Fruta sized. I mean, there, there were Brady Bunches who were probably out ahead who, who disappeared. You have to have a certain number. Wait, you just
0: had the Brady Bunch eaten in this metaphor. Oh, yeah. Just, they,
1: okay. I, I'm sure there was an episode about it. <laughs> So you would need a population. You would need enough to reproduce for people to meet other people that are, that are not part of your family. I think you meet a researcher who studies this. Like, What is the minimum number of people you'd need to have a sustainable population? Yeah, and it, it depends on on what that number is doing. Uh, the bottom number is, is 40 if you really control who is mating with who. So you really have to have a, a, a tight social unit. 400 is more of the, okay, there's a chance that they're going to survive and they don't have to have this ironclad social system. But for for space travel, I think the number is uh, maybe it's 1,600, you know, taking into account that there are going to be population crashes, there are going to be emergencies. But that is guaranteeing that you'll, you'll have a population to reach somewhere that you can start again. I want to go back to the why. Why
0: people would have come to what we now know as North America. And how different was the continent, our continent, back then?
1: Well, basically, if you take where you live and you think about the climate that's a 1,000 feet higher, that's what it would be like there. Okay. Half of North America was under ice, so almost all of Canada was under an ice sheet. But down here in Colorado... The rivers are all in the same place, more or less. Um, The mountain ranges would have been hemmed in with big ice sheets, so massive glaciers that would have gone on for thousands of square miles. But the basic shape of the land is the same. So that's why you can walk out on it and still be in the ice age. You just have to imagine what has changed. You have to put the glaciers back into place.
0: I have to say, in the Grand Valley, in the summer, the notion of that ice sounds lovely, just lovely. Oh, yeah.
1: I think it would be marvelous here in the Ice Age. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> to this question, though, of, of why they came, you
0: talk about birds. If you would have seen birds flying beyond, maybe that would have been a pole or a magnet.
1: Yeah, and I, I think when, when they crossed the land bridge and they got to this side... Often we think of them just marching into the continent, but you're looking at uh, at least 2,000 miles of ice before reaching the Dakotas or, or Montana, so they would have reached a place where it looked like there was just death, but to see birds flying across it, coming to every every spring, coming up to migrate and nest, they would have known there's something out there on the other side, and they're... Most birds couldn't make it across the ice sheet, but there are a couple species, a sandhill crane and a, a shorebird called a red knot that were landing up there. So people were seeing these, so they knew this, the birds have a world in the winter that we're not part of. Let's go over there. Yeah, let's go over there. And you start walking, and it's 2,000 miles um, of nothing, <laughs> of, of just polar wasteland, just ice. Would they have had shelter, homes of some kind? Yeah, yeah, living in the far north, they would have needed something. Um, If they didn't have shelter, they would have had to migrate to a warmer place every winter. And I think the shelter is what allowed them to move into the north. So they started building uh, these oval structures around 25,000 years ago in Siberia. And they used uh, mammoth jaws, sometimes 100 mammoth jaws, to to line the outside of their huts.
0: Not necessarily mammoths they would have killed themselves.
1: No, probably that they found out there. Uh, there have been huts found entirely made of mammoth parts, of, of massive femurs and tusks and one of those huts had a big mammoth skull sitting inside of it with, with a painted, almost looks like a map on its forehead. Okay, that's badass.
0: Like, <laughs> you know, you can live in a In a mud home, you can live in a tiny home, but if you live in a mammoth-bone
1: home... Yeah, that was the high end. That was the the, the gated front with the the, uh, big tusks that only certain people could walk through. I, I can only imagine what it was. What would they have eaten? And did
0: you think about trying Ice Age food to the extent that was possible?
1: Well, most of what they ate was probably small. They were probably eating rabbits, uh, deer, easy stuff. But there is evidence that they were killing mammoths, uh, giant bison, so big, big animals. And that's a, a big debate amongst archaeologists. Are, are they really living off these mammoths or are these big ceremonial hunts? I actually originally planned to go on a, uh, a feral boar hunt with a clovis point. Uh, as part of this book, a Clovis
0: of, point is
1: so it's a stone tool. A stone tool, yeah, okay. a stone spear point. And and uh, and I I had it all set up. I had some friends in Oklahoma, and we were gonna just take off with the uh, stone tools and go crazy. Um, it's probably good that we didn't. Why? <laughs> um, because I I've, I've I never been a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I talked to people who hunt feral boar, and they and they said you've hunted them before, right? And I said no. They said, "Well, you're going to do it with what?" And I said, "Yeah, an ice age weapon." <laughs> they said, "You know, those things are really big, and uh, and it's not going to be easy for you, which is why I should have done it, um, because I wanted to be, I wanted to understand the hunt from their perspective." And the, granted, it's not a mastodon, but it's a it's a big semi wild animal. Uh, didn't happen.
0: You admit to a fondness for mammoth. In particular, this is just, i, I don 't know is like a mammoth your spirit animal, or what <laughs> it 's
1: <laughs> sure <laughs> let it be said now <laughs> it 's my spirit animal it's i 've been looking at mammoths since I was a kid uh, the back when the Denver Museum was the museum of natural history uh, you know i 'd go in there and i 'd go straight for the mammoth because there used to be a big mammoth that was had bolts coming down from the ceiling and this big skeleton. And, and I would just stand under it and, and think, okay, this is something that people knew. Whereas the dinosaurs, they're fascinating, but we didn't know them.
0: They're so old, right? Yeah,
1: they're from another time. But the mammoth crosses over into our world. So we had a relationship with these animals. And, and I would stand underneath it and just think, there were other people who stood underneath you and looked at you and had a relationship with you where I look at a T-Rex and go, oh, my God, that's, that's from a whole other universe. I, I don't even know what that time was like, but I know what this time was like. You write about, I think, what are serious attempts, or at least serious
0: conversations about bringing mammoths back.
1: Yeah. Tell me about this. It's picking up speed. Um, up in the north, you can get DNA out of tissue samples because they're in the perma- permafrost there. You can still eat mammoth. It's sitting in the permafrost, so it's still meat. Are there people who've done that? There are people who've done that. Uh, they they, they like... don't respond favorably. <laughs> <laughs> they said it was pretty awful, huh? But it's still you can you can get enough DNA to start reconstructing a mammoth uh, by using an Indian elephant as your base. But you're not really making a woolly mammoth. You're making a, a mammophant. You're making an elephant mammoth mixture so it's a I I don't know how to feel about it because I get excited about the idea yeah Yeah. bring back mammoths and I think god that's crazy do we need that do we want that what are we doing where does this lead we're bringing half an animal back from the ice age into our world that is we're struggling enough trying to figure out what our world is about and the part of me that says throw more variables let's see what happens (laughs) that's that's the part that goes yeah bring the mammoths back but the other part that says you know what we should probably take a closer look at what we're doing before we bring an Ice Age animal back. That's, that's the part that I'm siding with right now. But it would be amazing to see a mammoth walking across the tundra. Throughout the book, you do try to imagine what these
0: early arrivals would have experienced. And at one point, you're actually traveling with your then wife and kids, I think in Alaska. Do I yeah. have that right? Yeah. Yeah, I want to have you read this passage from the book. I thought it was so lovely, and it was... A bringing together of your imagination, but also your kids right in front of you.
1: I studied each of our children, wondering who they'd be in a tribe on the far side of the world. Any tribe would need hunters and healers, people who knew the plants, what was edible and what wasn't, the bark of mountain alder, good for arthritis, and willow for headaches, how to eat and how not to get eaten. "'Someone would have had to have had an eye for sickly mammoths in the hunt. "'Another would need to be good at starting fires with a hand drill. "'What would my own boys have done in this ancient tribe? "'They stuck their noses into bear prints, ate leaves, and held up driftwood, "'aligning themselves with horizons. "'In a half-hearted rain, my younger boy, Jado, was down by the water, "'talking to animals.' Six years old, he stood at the edge of the tide in black rubber boots, holding a barnacle-encrusted rock. He cupped it near his mouth in both hands and hummed to it. I approached the boy like a modern father. I flipped on my camera and asked what he was doing. Jado looked up, distracted, dots of mist caught in his eyelashes. Glancing at the camera, he said, I'm humming to make them come out. To make what come out? The snails? He tipped the rock toward me, showing a couple small black periwinkles. So you hum and the snails come out of the shells. Yeah, but it takes an hour to get them to come out. He turned and scurried away. He who talks to snails. I thought
0: this was lovely because it's such a great lens to look at history through, which is if you can imagine your child in that moment. So much of what's around them and so much about the difficulties they'd face and the worries you'd have
1: emerge yeah because children were part of this equation and that's what i think we forget we we see these brave hunters crossing the land bridge with spears and going off on this journey. And we forget that these are, had to have been groups of grandparents and uncles and aunts and, and children, especially children, because you're not a migration if you don't have children. So having them there and being a parent where you're worried about big bears on the coast of Alaska and little kids... You're, you're experiencing something primal. And I think all parents experience this primal thing. At the playground, a kid falls and you feel that in your gut. So I think it's the same feeling they had 15,000 years ago, where it would have been as much of a tragedy then to lose your kid as it is now. But then you had saber-toothed cats and you had giant bears. You had a whole different story. So so I was trying to get in touch with that that feeling you know, when I when I saw the kill that a bear had left as we were scouting another island. I, it it was the size of the four year old who was in our group, and I just saw that and went, "Whoa, this is like I I feel it." I, I, none of the kids in our group will be lost. We will we will do whatever we can to get our kids out of here to the next adventure, to the next thing we're doing. But it's Think about that in the Ice Age with giant animals around you, how much you would have focused on children. I'm also thinking about
0: couples. Like, If one of the couple had the desire to go, to go over there, and the other didn't, I'm hearing this Ice Age bickering. Oh, yeah. Like, what have you gotten us into? It,
1: it was fine at home. I'm sure that happened countless times. That, that there was always somebody saying, no, it, it's time to go. we got to get out of here. And, and somebody just going, you know, we just moved. We, just, <laughs> we got to this island. It's really nice. Because you look at the distances people were traveling. That, that If you're going to come into the Americas, you're going to arrive on the coast. Why not stay in California? Why, why keep going inland? Why go 1,000 miles inland? And somebody is probably there going, do we really know what we're doing here? Yeah. That would be me by the way. Well, the and, like ice age complaining.
0: <laughs> oh god, if I see one more iceberg
1: I think it would have been an important thing, though. You would have wanted a complainer along because somebody would have said, Listen, people, it, it's going too far. We've got to step back because there would have been a day that, that somebody would have said, Let's go. And somebody else going, No, there are like 20 saber-toothed cats down there. We're all going to get eaten. So somebody has to be pulling back. I think that this is the dynamic of a traveling group. You know, I have people in this, in the book, who were out on an ice field and, and, A woman who was out there was talking to me about this distance we were about to cover across the ice sheet and some of the group was just really excited to go and and she looked at me and she said you know Craig I I love what's out there I love what we're going toward and I love my life Mm -hmm. and I actually love my life more than I love what's out there And she was our safety. She was the one saying, "You know what? We need to work on our ropes today. We need to practice our knots." And whereas other people in the group were going, "Ah, screw the knots. We can we can get out there. It's ready and open for us." So, a group traveling in the Ice Age would have been the same as us now: the complainer who was probably the one who kept people from dying, and the uh, the adventurer who probably got a lot of people killed. Did you listen to her? <laughs> It was to half and half. <laughs> it was enough that we didn't go as far as we could have. Um, we went as far as we should have. It worked. There's a pretty harsh review of your book in the New York Times
0: oh. by an emeritus professor of anthropology who seems to be able to have absolutely no fun. <laughs> I'm just going to quote the review. This is nonsensical docudrama stuff as if human existence were nothing but an endless battle against huge beasts. Most experts agree that kills of mammoth, mastodon, and other large animals were rarities, perhaps once-in-a-lifetime events. I think his fundamental point is, maybe you added a little too much drama so that it it separated from the the solid science. What do you make of that criticism?
1: I think we're... uh battling giant beasts right now. <laughs> I think it's something that we've always been doing in one way or another. And I think back then, a mammoth hunt would have been pretty dramatic. And I want to write about those moments. I mean, I'm writing about it in this book saying this, this might not have happened very often. It might have been a big story carried for generations. But they would have been telling that story. And I'm telling the story that I think they would have been telling which is we had this moment like people died trying to take this mammoth down and we have this story that we're telling and so I'm looking back I look at whale hunts that are happening in these indigenous communities in the north and they have these massive stories just and then you know they toppled the the boat and and the the stories just go on and on and I think it was the same then and so I think his his argument is that, that I focus too much on the big animals and the intense experiences but those things happened and I want to convey that because that was the world they lived in. I think archaeologists can sometimes get in the numbers so heavily that, that it's, it's, it's easy to forget what's out there. But the archaeologists that I go out there with, I see them leave their desks and walk out and go, oh, I see. I see how this works, where people were. You, you watch them light up when they come outside. I just don't think he's outside that much. <laughs> <laughs>
0: he who shall not be named. We've talked about the, the Bering Land Bridge as being a theory, which means there must be other theories as to how people came to this continent. Why couldn't... I mean, it was no picnic coming over on the land bridge. Why couldn't they have come over across the Atlantic?
1: Well, there's some evidence that people did come across the Atlantic, Um, and that's another controversial thing, Uh, but I think people were coming from many directions. The, The people who, in theory crossed the Atlantic probably 20,000 to 17,000 years ago and landed on the East Coast.
0: We're not talking about Nina Pinta Santa Maria here.
1: No, this is, this is Paleolithic European, so a, a very different time. These were probably uh, ice flow hunters, people you would, you would imagine in kayaks who were hunting from one ice flow to the next, and eventually their ice flow may have landed them on North America. And it appears that they didn't have a population that was enough to sustain themselves, and they died out. Okay, But this probably happened many times. And it's, it's not that the land bridge is the only way to get here. There, there are so many ways. The, the whole West Coast was available to them, from Alaska down. So that's a bit more direct than crossing the land bridge. I mean, when you say Alaska down, you mean
0: Alaska down past what we think of as the United States and Mexico and into Central and South America. Yeah,
1: all the way to the tip. Uh, one of the major Paleolithic sites in the Americas is in southern Chile, down in Patagonia. So people were, were making it down there pretty fast. We can't talk about Ice Age discoveries without mentioning
0: the trove uncovered in Snowmass, Colorado, several years ago. Yeah. Uh, much of which is in the collection of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, where you... Uh, had your daydreams as a kid? Why was that snowmass discovery so important?
1: Well, it was. It, we haven't seen that many mastodons and mammoths in, in the state, so this was this this concentration. So they're all in there in one spot. So the excavation was just amazing. There were large bones everywhere, tusks coming out of the ground, and this started as a public works project, and they happened upon
0: this this treasure.
1: Yeah, yeah, and they had to do it fast because this is a the bottom of a reservoir that was going to get filled again. And and um, the question here is: Were humans involved in this? The, a lot of these uh, these bones date back far enough that there weren't humans around. But I'm interested in the the uppermost mammoth that was found there, and it has scrape marks on it, which archaeologists are saying no, they're these don't look like human marks. But then I go back in the back room with a with paleontologist who just says, you know, I'm not supposed to say this because, you know, we're supposed to just talk as, as if this is a paleontological site. But I think it's an archaeological site. These scrape marks look human. And this one mammoth has 11 rocks on top of it and the rocks are all the same size, and they're not found in the area. And this is in other areas in Siberia or in the Midwest. You'd find this, and you would say, oh, they were caching mammoth meat in water by putting rocks on top of them. But here, it's, it's, it's controversial whether humans are involved or not, because if this is an archaeological site, it changes. It's, it, it gets on the map in a very different way. Wouldn't we expect there to be some human bones, though, in that area? Well, let me say that that mammoth dated to 40,000 years ago. So if humans were there, that would, that would push it way back. Way back. Um, you wouldn't necessarily find human material at all because they would just be caching meat there and then they'd be moving on. So, No human... more than you'd find human bones in my refrigerator. Right, right. The, there's but you, no... <laughs> will,
0: you won't! Okay. That, that, that was
1: not a cry for help, Craig. <laughs> but near the refrigerator, perhaps. <laughs> because in in this case in this case people would have been down the valley setting their camps down there and they would be gone But 40,000 years ago is a long time ago. I mean, that really would skew the understanding of when people arrived. It would skew it, but there's also some evidence. There are are broken bones, mammoth long bones, uh, from Colorado to the upper Yukon that look like they were broken by humans, and they date back to 20, 30, and 40,000 years ago. So there are these faint... Messages coming from way back saying that maybe some people were coming through here and maybe these people died off. Maybe we'll never know who they were, but there's some evidence that people were coming earlier than we think. Why does that capture me so powerfully to think that? What- I mean, what what draws me to it is to think how many arrivals didn't work, how many people landed and didn't do it, which means this is so rich. There are so many stories we will never access, and there's something beautiful about knowing that you have the one story, and there are a thousand more that will never be told, and that just deepens history in a way that you can never know about, but you know that it's there. I want to quote from the book,
0: we have all but forgotten to inhabit this kind of fear, Uh, And you're talking about the fear that these Ice Age people would have faced all around them, the, the predators and such. To go back to your words, we gave up spears and skins and the weather on us day and night for cup holders and cell phones and doors to close behind us. What, I wonder, was lost.
1: How do you answer your own question? What have we lost? I think I taste it sometimes when I'm out there. I think that, that I'm out in the backcountry finding routes, looking for ways over landforms, and, and I can feel it. I can feel this old voice inside of me saying, there's the route, and watch this mountain come and then watch it go behind you. There's this sense of motion and distance that, that I don't think we have anymore, that we get in an airplane or a car and, and we close those distances rapidly. And back then, it was, it was foot travel, and it was smell. And that's something that I wondered being out on, a, on the ice sheet when I was in a whiteout, and I was smelling. And I wonder if they would have known that this wind is coming off the ice, whereas that wind over there is coming from a forest somewhere 30 miles away. And these things are what I think we've lost, and I, and I just barely touch on them when I'm out there. I can feel it. That if I actually lived out there, if I was part of that world, that would be that would be part of my life. That would be the larger brain. The 5% more would be all that information of what does smell tell you? What does this track tell you that's in the snow? Where have mammoths been? You can watch them move through the forest. All these details that, that we've replaced with a lot. I mean, we, we have a lot on our minds now. I, I think maybe humans have always had the same amount of Mm. stress and information incoming. We just don't have access to that information every day because every day we're in these clothes, in these chairs, in these cars dealing with a very different reality. Craig Childs,
0: thanks for being with us.
1: Certainly. I'm glad to be here. Author Craig Childs lives in
0: Norwood, Colorado. We spoke on stage at the Avalon Theater in Grand Junction about his new book, Atlas of a Lost World, Travels in Ice Age America. We'll post an excerpt later today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's extreme drought has put farmers and ranchers in a tight corner. While dry summers aren't new, a winter and spring with little snow or rain means parts of the state are getting drier faster. CPR's Grace Hood reports on the plight of agriculture.
2: Every day, southwestern Colorado rancher Matt Isgar starts an increasingly complex puzzle. The goal is to find food for his 135 cattle.
1: Most of the pasture that we used last year, we're not using this year because there's with no moisture. There's no new growth.
2: Isgar ranches in Hesperus, west of Durango. As the dark red bullseye of exceptional drought creeps outward from the four corners, Isgar has lowered his grazing standards. He sold off 35 head to stop the financial bleeding. But he's still paying to make his new pastures work.
1: We're spending more material and labor, fixing fences and hauling water, and you know, we're supplementing with protein. So every day is more expensive to operate.
2: Hot and dry conditions have become an insidious foe to Colorado ranchers and farmers. June marked the third warmest on record for the entire state. Colorado should see normal monsoon moisture this year, but that doesn't help Rocky Ford cantaloupe farmer Greg Smith. He saw the writing on the wall this spring with low snowpack, so he planted only a third of his 100-acre farm.
0: It's just brown dry. You know, a match that started on fire and you'd have a prairie fire that may run for miles.
2: Smith says there's a cost to leaving fields empty. He still treats the soil to prevent weeds. And financially, even with fewer acres planted, he's got the same bills to pay. Even retirement plans got delayed this year. His effort to build a second retirement residence was torched by the Spring Creek Fire.
0: Actually, I think it's probably going to be on hold for at least a couple of years to see how the place shapes up. It's not going
1: to be the same as it was, that's for sure.
2: Further east in Baca County, the epicenter of the 30s Dust Bowl, dryland wheat farmer Brian Brooks says he's seen worse. His crop yields are also down by about five bushels per acre. Prices have decreased slightly. His saving grace this year was above-average rainfall last year that supercharged the soil.
0: You know, as farming technology has came forward, we're uh, more no-tilling, and able to conserve its moisture and use it to our benefit in the future.
2: That future will likely mean hotter temperatures, which can prolong drought once it's arrived. Roger Polwardy is a senior scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He says hotter temperatures can prompt flash droughts, like in 2012 when the majority of the U.S. ballooned into drought over just a few months.
1: This idea of intensification in drought is what makes drought very unique. By the time it has intensified, we've used up all the buffers that we relied on. Cheaper grain, and now we're at the mercy of a very, very strong event.
2: It feels like that hotter, drier future has already arrived for hay grower Ed Zink near Durango. For 70 years, he's lived on Waterfall Ranch, which he can typically see on nearby rocky cliffs. But this is the first year there's no waterfall.
1: It's not even keeping the rock wet. It is dry.
2: Zink says he watched the 416 wildfire come within a half mile of his property last month, another first. Ample water rights for his property have meant little difficulty growing hay this year. But Zink says 70 years ago, his property was situated at the edge of an alpine forest. He could see desert to the south. That desert has started marching northward toward his farm.
1: I I don't know how to exactly put it in perspective, but It feels like the edge of that desert has moved 50 or 75 miles in my lifetime.
2: Another change in Zink's lifetime, his neighbor's wells have started to dry up. Groundwater is on the decline and the cause is not fully known. La Plata County plans a comprehensive study on the problem. The picture all adds up to a landscape of more people making do with less water. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News.
0: And I'm Ryan Warner. You can subscribe to the Colorado Matters podcast through your favorite podcast service, including iTunes. We're also on NPR One. Thanks for spending time with us at CPR
2: News.